Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Today we are tackling the big one, dosage and frequency of intervention for children with DLD. Our special guest is Professor Laura Justice from The Ohio State University. Laura is well known and respected for her research into language therapy. So, welcome Laura. I think we'll start by getting you to introduce yourself and just getting you to talk about your connection with DLD. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. I'm a professor at Ohio State University. I'm in the program in educational psychology, but I am by training a speech language therapist. And that that the focus on kids with developmental language disorders is where my heart has always been for over 20 years. Um, and so I've maintained a pretty focused research agenda around kids with developmental uh, language disorders, especially in the area of literacy. But then I also do more general work as well. Absolutely. And there's some of the papers I think that I have definitely read over my professional life. I mean, I know you for your research in language intervention, particularly for children with DLD, but you've been particularly instrumental in getting clinicians to think about dosage and frequency for intervention. I was saying to you just before we started recording that one of the um, highlights for me of the 2017, I think it was, Speech Pathology Australia conference was listening to you talk as a keynote around dosage and frequency and really sort of started to shape the way that I thought about my own language therapy and supporting others. Can you please explain to our listeners what you mean when you talk about dosage and frequency? Yeah, so um, the idea of dosage, um, the way I think about it is what is the active mechanism that brings about change in, in this case, a child's language skills or literacy skills. So, you know, as clinicians, we sit down with a person and we're engaging in therapy that ought to be bringing about change in whatever it is we're trying to change. So there's something in what we're doing that would be the active mechanism. And, um, I think a lot of SLPs, we have an implicit belief system about what we're doing and what the active mechanism is, but we actually, people have a really hard time being precise in what it is they're doing that brings about change. But so if you walk around talking to therapists who work with young kids um, and you say, what is it you're doing that brings about change? That's the dose. Um, but is it, for instance, recasting? You know, you're working with a little kid who has syntactic issues and you're repeating everything that child says with something slightly more complex. Is it questions? Um, SLPs are really into questions and um, using questions as a way to elicit more complex responses. Is it, and, and is it some sort of model that we provide and that we want um, a child to then emulate, which you might see in certain phonology articulation approaches, but in, across any field, doses, what is that active ingredient? And you know, to talk about dosage, we first have to get really precise on what is it inside therapy that brings about the change. And it's only then that we can start to talk seriously about manipulating that in a way that makes our therapy more optimized. Um, if we think about, um, you know, we're all living in a pandemic. Um, I don't know if you got a vaccine. I got a vaccine. I got two. Not yet. I'm booked um, in though. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so you go in, you know, you get 
some sort of stuff shoved in your arm Mm. can guarantee you that there's been, you know, a gazillion person hours put in to specifying exactly how much of that thing you need to get a proper response. And, you know, we can take that analogy to therapy. Um, I think we're very, very far away from being precise, but at least we can have good conversations about it. I'm actually thinking about a study that I did a few years ago where it was a pilot study and we were looking at service delivery and actually whether the service was effective and we looked at standardized measures that were available within the service and found that quite interestingly, receptive language made a statistically significant improvement. But in terms of actually, my my final point was, but we don't actually know why, what the dosage, what was the optimal dosage? Because we know receptive language is something that can be hard to shift. Um, But as a cohort, these kids with DLD improved in their understanding, but exactly mapping out why was going to be something that I think was going to take several more years because it's a, um, you know, it's, it's so hard to pinpoint, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I, I think it's actually, it's pinpointable, mm. knowable, but we don't tend to do that kind of work um, yeah. as a field. You're not going to find a lot of studies. So we kind of have the big, bold clinical studies, a lot of these in the UK, um, some in Australia, we, we look at large cohorts of kids and then you have these itty bitty tiny lab studies, um, but we don't really have anything in between. Um, so there are people who are trying to pinpoint in these lab studies, but they're with you know really small samples, um, only looking at one thing. Um, and so there is this space that we really haven't traveled as a field for, for unknown reasons. It's interesting you drew that parallel then with medicine, because obviously this is a space that medicine focuses solely on in terms of at least from a pharmaceutical you know treatment perspective because obviously they're trying to treat symptoms um, but really bringing it into the allied health or social sciences field has been something that's been perhaps a long time coming and some of it you'll see some papers in education especially like around vocabulary or actually tutoring is a really good one where you do we do um, double dose tutoring for kids so maybe you have kids who are struggling in algebra so they get the core curriculum and then add on tutoring which is basically a double dose Mm. so you do see those studies out there um what you won't see is really people leaning hard into the idea of this being a dose discussion because in the world of education uh, some people get really nervous about what would be called a medical model, but we, we definitely see papers that are kind of, they're in that space, but they're not calling it that space. Even some of the response to intervention literature, you have kids in effect getting multiple doses of something. And we have to ask questions of, you know, are there really at good additive effects when you start layering, you know, multiple sessions on top of each other? Um, because that additive assumption doesn't always bear out. And of course, then there's the component of that is how often should you do it? You gave the example of the um, COVID-19 vaccine and there's multiple uh, of those available, but most, if not all, I think are multiple vaccinations over a period of time. So you need to do it um, once and then you need to do it again. And I always think about, um, we've got a funding model in Australia where children can access speech pathology, but it might only be five sessions that is funded or part funded by the government. Um, 
And so often the kids that I work with developmental language disorder are self-funded or trying to apply for national disability insurance scheme funding. Um, some of those are successful, some of them are unsuccessful, but we need to know, I guess, you know, say to the say to the Australian government, five sessions for these children is nice, but may not be enough. Or is there a way that we space out? Do we do it as a chunk or over a period of time? And that comes into, I guess, the the frequency discussion around what we're doing for intervention as well. I guess. Yeah, you're right. So we talked earlier about what I call dose, and that comes from um, you know other people's writings. But that issue of dose, what happens within a session. And then we get to this, what we might call frequency question of, well, how often do we need to see someone? And I usually call that intensity or frequency. So are you gonna see someone once a week for 30 minutes, every other week for 30 minutes? And ultimately, the ultimate measure of what we would call treatment intensity is multiplying those two together. So mm -hmm. I see one child once a week for 10 weeks. So you have 10 session times you know, 10 active ingredients in each session is, I can't do my quick, you know, a thousand yeah. exposures. Um, but you're absolutely right. And we, um, you know, I get, okay, at the risk of getting in trouble, but, you know, <laughs> in, in the United States, we have the American Speech and Hearing Association, which at the end of the day is an advocacy organization to mm. advocate for people with communication disorders and the professionals who serve them. And ASHA has on several occasions taken on this intensity issue. And based on the data they look at, they make the argument that more is better than less. Mm -hmm. um, you know, seeing a child 60 times is always going to be better than 30 times. But that's not a scientific argument. It's, it's good advocacy because I'm going to get paid more. Mm -hmm. But scientifically, we don't have any evidence that seeing somebody 60 times is better than 30 times. And, you know, we really have to do that science because, you know, when you look at dosage in a lot of studies, we have what's called an iotrogenic effect where you're actually over-treating mm -hmm. and causing harm. And you could see a scenario where you have, a you know, kids who are pulled out of the classroom every single day because we believe more intensity is better. And there's all sorts of adversities that can happen from that. Um, but at the very least, what I've seen in a lot of my work is as that cumulative intervention intensity goes up, 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 you're going to hit a point of diminishing returns. So, you know, a, a really simple analogy would be maybe you're trying to be a better golfer. And so you go out every day for three hours and then you start going every day for six hours where there's going to be a point where that double doesn't get you double the effect. And we call that diminishing returns. And we have fairly good evidence that we see that um, in speech language therapy, at least for treatment of um, literacy issues. And I think that that's something that we see day in and day out is these children who are attending speech therapy and it even starts back at diagnosis. The first questions parents ask is, what should I do and how much is it going to cost, essentially, to do this intervention over a period of time? And um, in my clinical work, parents are often fee paying. So they want to know how much they should be budgeting for because nobody's just got thousands of dollars lying around that they're not planning on doing something with. So there's always a bit of 
give and take. And one of the things that I've been trying to do over my practice over the last couple of years is booking in for blocks of therapy and then having intentional breaks and to ensure that the breaks are for rest, recovery, but also not to fatigue their interest in A, seeing me, or if they are fatigued with seeing me, can I transition them onto another clinician who might have the skill sets that they need at that period of time with the you know, uh, engagement and enthusiasm that helps them continue in their, their goals. So I think there's a lot around what we can do as clinicians in particular, but also around families' understanding of, well, how long is a piece of string? And if they're thinking this is just going to go on forever, well, that may not be something that feels achievable to them. I think the model you just described is spot on, especially what you do when, you know, science meets reality and you really don't know um, what's the best course. I think you're absolutely right to, to try to leverage that spacing effect, take, take a break, consolidate, see where you are. So there's a lot of um, literature out there around different areas. And so I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on how does the evidence actually vary for different language interventions. So somebody might be focusing on grammar or vocab or storytelling or what we would call narratives um, or phonological awareness. We've touched on literacy. I'm imagining that they're all at probably different points of development in our understanding of dosage. So where are we kind of, where are we at? <laughs> um, I like the, your response. Where, where we are is the fact that I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that I don't even know if we can substantiate. But yeah. in general, if if we piece together what we have, mm. um, and we look, I'm I'm gonna set aside phonology and articulation because mm -hmm. I think there are experts in that space who can speak to that better. And I'm also going to set aside adult treatment of say acquired disorders because I think there's literature there. But if we think about kids and what is known, um, if I look at the best in class lab-based studies where let's say they take a group of kids and they wanna teach them something complex, like some complicated scientific concept um, like shallowness as a, a physics concept or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they do these really controlled studies where they have kids get instruction in masked versus spaced paradigms. So maybe the kids go every day for five days versus once a week for five weeks. The spaced always outperforms, um, especially in longer term improvements. And so um, so we have these laboratory experimental studies where we look at teaching kids tough concepts. Um, we have the work we've done um, where we've looked at, this is more correlational, it's not experiments, but what we find is a really clear um, interplay between dose and frequency where mm -hmm. you increase dosing or what we're gonna call really highly productive sessions, but you space them out, you get as strong an effect as much more intensive treatments. Mm -hmm. um, see that in early literacy. So it's a phenomenon, this spacing effect is a phenomenon that holds across different areas of development and different research paradigms. So if, I mean, I actually just got physical therapy over the last four months for mm. I bust ankle. Ouch. And I went in and I saw the doctor and he said, 
wear this boot and go see physical therapy. And I said, how often? And he said, well, I'd like you to go three times a week. And I thought to myself, well, there's no way I'm going three times a week. I, I'm not sure I buy that I need this and I don't have three hours. So I went once a week and I was very, very comfortable based on all sorts of parameters. I'm going to go once a week. I'm going to really pay attention and that it's going to be very productive and I'm going to do stuff in between. Um, and, you know, I don't have a control of me, <laughs> who went really, but I feel really confident that that was the right choice. And I think that that spacing holds up um, for lots of different things. Now, it, it's when I get to phonology articulation that I don't know if we're looking say motor programming of certain things there is you know a practice effect we need to achieve but i think when we're talking about language early reading cognition um that i i read i read an article yesterday about what the best um teachers do um looking at really the science of reading and the what are the best teachers do and they do very highly productive brisk intense teaching they're all in for like 20 minutes. And that, so if we look at classroom-based studies, we see this sort of highly productive focus on time that seems to pay off. So it sounds like there's lots of factors that do come into play with, with language therapy. We've touched on some already being things like, um, you know, motivation and interest, but also there's going to be I mean, how severe is the person's language difficulty as well as how supported they are by family and friends? And I mean, um, you know, your physio scenario fits in a little bit around, you know, maybe if somebody was supporting you or encouraging you to do it, you might have done things slightly differently potentially or you might have done exactly the same, but you might have done more at home. Um, how difficult is it as a researcher to work out what the optimal dose for language therapy is? And I'm imagining that that might actually change over a period of time. Um, are there going to be differences between, say, a five-year-old and then a 15-year-old who might be engaging in, in language therapy? Yeah, this is really hard. And, you know, because we're getting at, you know, language is a really complex, complex human characteristic. And so it's multi-determined, right? Um, but we can say that about a lot of things. So... I, I always, I think about this is in part, I think we need to backtrack. So if we're working with um, a five-year-old kid who has DLD and you're signing on to be in that kid's therapist for the next year, what is the optimal amount of language growth we want to see for that kid? And I would say that that should be somewhat agnostic of all these other factors. So, um, and we do this in reading achievement, like how much reading achievement do we want kids to go to gain from grade two to grade three? And we really haven't done that as a field. We're really resistant to saying, this is how much we, this is the outcome we want. Um, and we have a paper that came out a couple years ago where we did a deep dive into um, what we called language benchmarks, like how much do we want um, kids to grow? And what we see is that, you know, there is more growth when kids are younger, two, three, four, five, six, and then we start to see less. But in general, I believe we're seeing like, you know, half of a standard deviation growth annually um, across these ages. So you know, I think we really have to start there and say, what actually is my goal 
for this child. And that goal can't be things like, you know, we'll tell a story with three parts. It's got, you know, what do we really want? Um, and then we backwards solve. And, you know, we could start, keep it really, really simple and say, we're gonna backwards solve for, you know, these treatment variables that are in our control. Um, and so, you know, to get that optimal amount of language growth, I need to see a child this often and it needs to be this intense. Um, and then it's really a data management scheme. Um, and, you know, we do see efforts in other fields of education where they're getting closer to nailing it around this sort of, um, a more data-driven approach, um, but I, I really don't know that we've been that comfortable playing in this space. Um, but to me, it's if I start digging through all of my textbooks, I don't see anybody come out and say, this is how much language growth we want our kids to experience. And, and we even get, re if I would go so bold, say, I was gonna say something right now that's super radical, that if, <laughs> I'm a therapist and I'm seeing a five-year-old, I think it would be appropriate to give that kid a standardized language assessment in June of the year and do it again the next June and determine how much language that kid actually grew. Um, and speech language therapists will fight that idea to the nail. And they'll say these weren't designed to measure progress. They weren't designed to do all sorts of stuff, but that is exactly what we do everywhere else in education. We give a standard test every year and we use it to measure growth. And then we use it to modify what we're doing if we're not seeing optimal growth. So we, we do need to be maybe a little bit more um, creative in this mm. space. And I'd be similarly bold to throw out some sort of level of functional, you know, some functional measure as well. Absolutely. You know, would be helpful. I've, I've been somebody who I say to everybody in the last, I mean, I've been a speech pathologist coming up 15 years and it's only been in the last few years that I will value um, non-standardized assessments in decision-making as much as I will now around standardized measures. It's something that I've been taught and attended PD and everything, but that level of trust in terms of looking at, I guess, something more functional for a child um, and seeing how they're going and the time that it takes to do something like a language sample and look at how they're going functionally. I find that that with the standardized measures really gives me a more complete understanding of not just how the child is going in terms of their growth. And I think that um, looking at something like, uh, you know, we call it the self. I was laughing online. There's an argument around the Kelf versus the self. Sorry, UK listeners, you know. <laughs> but um, with, the set, with the self, we would be looking at, you know, are they actually maintaining or are there actually improvements? And if there's a decline, why is there a decline? And perhaps language isn't the primary part of their condition. Maybe there's something else at play here, but you know, we'd ex at least expect a kid with DLD to be consistent in their growth, you know, one year of progress for one year of life. But I mean, parents would like to see more than that, wouldn't they? You know, parents would love to see increased growth. And I think as clinicians, we would too. It's, um, it's a really fine balancing act. I, I hope that maybe in the future, there's a, you know, we, when we're saying we're looking for average communication skills or average language skills, that that is something that we now then have the dosage and um, concepts to actually achieve. I'm kind of jumping towards the end here, but I just think it's something that 
I don't think I've let myself be um, whimsical or or um, flighty enough or you know, high level enough to think, well, actually, that is the goal for a lot of parents, isn't it? Is there a way that with our clinical work and our research to actually achieve that? And I think that we sometimes self-limit. Well, I agree with you. And we had a paper that came out a year or so ago where we um, used um, basically machine learning to look at the best um, prognostic indicators of whether a child had DLD or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found out is that um, an informal measure of prag- basically pragmatic skills was a very, very clear index. Um, and that really, get, you know, can a child enter a conversation with peers? You know, can a child ask for and get information? I mean, these are these real functional skills that we need to use language for. Um, and basically, when we have kids who can't do those things based on parent report or teacher report, it's a really good indicator that that child's language is affected so i agree with you i think that we're um kind of riding the wave at the moment aren't we there's lots to come (laughs) hopefully one of the things that i think is really interesting around therapy and something that i love i mean i i was in a managerial role for five years and it's only been in the last 12 months that i've returned to a clinical clinical role and it's something that i i love working with children and families Um, But I really have observed that they've got such complementary roles in language therapy. You know, I can't do language therapy without the family and child's engagement. If the child won't participate, engage and attend, it makes it very difficult for language therapy to be successful. Um, So I can put as much input as I like, but they're not going to change over time. Um, And so they have this, you know, there's this concept of the clinician being responsible for providing the therapy or, um, you know, the input and clients actually responding or demonstrating the output. Uh, When I put this question out around meeting with you for this podcast on Twitter, they raised the point that for some interventions, input dosage might actually be more important than the output dosage and vice versa. So for example, you gave before of recasting, you know, a child says something and then we add in um, additional levels of complexity and detail to, to rephrase what they've said. When looking at the research, how can clinicians actually compare these studies? Some of them might be focused on the clinician and some of them might be focused on the client that investigate those different roles. Ooh, that's Tricky such one. a good, good question. Um, I think we are very confused. And so if we, if we went and did, you know, I mean, if we went and did a survey of therapists and we asked them if dosage was input or output, I don't think we'd have consensus. And I, it's very confusing to me. And I think theoretically, we're, it's really unclear. Um, I can tell you that a lot of my current interest is language input delivered to kids. Um, I just was reading a paper today about parent input. It's lexical and syntactic quality when kids were little in their first grade um, language skills. And you know that is period, the measure of dosage. It's pure input-driven hypotheses of um, early language acquisition. I don't know how well formulated our speech therapy literature is in terms of input versus output. Actually, that's just a fantastic empirical question. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'll make a note to look into that. I won't claim that this question was mine. There was a beautiful conversation with um, 
Dr. Susan Ebbles and hopefully soon to be Dr. Samuel Calder on Twitter around um, uh, this exact point around they've been having these conversations around input and output. And it's something that I don't know that clinicians think enough about. You know, we see ourselves and I often will talk to um, student clinicians and new graduates around the fact that they in all reality, they tend to be quite egocentric. They're really quite focused on what they're doing and not actually then responding to what the child in that example would be doing. Um, so they're really focusing on them being the right input and not necessarily then looking at the output and then all the flow on error correction that sits in around that. And I think error corrections become a big interest of mine because I can provide a beautiful input but actually my ability to respond to the child in situ at the time to shape and recast or rephrase what they've done into the correct response is actually really powerful. And it's something that I think is really hard to distill what I do sometimes because for each instance, it might be a different error that they've generated or sometimes the error is consistent, but across different words. So it's quite... Um, yeah, it's quite an interesting and complex space, I think, as a clinician to work out what am I doing versus what's the child doing? And then how do I respond to what the child's doing um, to really kind of complete that loop? Well, I think we're going to have to talk to you moving forward because we just got a big grant to start this summer. And, and what we have, this, help me, let's keep talking about this because we have therapy sessions of about 230 kids mm. their therapists ages five, six, seven, and they're getting therapy repeatedly over 30 weeks. And so we have these and we actually just got funding to, to remine these, reanalyze them. And what we're doing mm. is we're working with engineers because what we're going to try, we have, we're developing pipelines through which we can automatically transcribe and code the SLP and the kid talk. Wow. And so by doing that, um, and we actually said we were going to look at, we can look at all aspects of the complexity of SLP talk. Mm. Um, but then at the same time as we're going to try to get into the patterns of communication, which is really what you're getting at, which, it, you know, the SLP says something, the child says something, then what happens and the goal is really to work at this very, very deep um, level of these interactions. And I think the reason we got funded was because, frankly, we said if we can identify the aspects of SLP talk that drives development of these kids, that is a really important therapeutic technique that mm. you can arm SLPs with. So your ideas are very rich. Mm. And as we get this rolling what our summer, your winter, I think it'd be really good to, to keep reaching out to you um, to help us think about this. Yeah. And I think that clinicians have, um, I think clinicians have a wealth of experience, but sometimes we struggle to actually put it into words, which is why I love, you know, even though I'm, I'm currently doing my PhD and engaged in research, I, and I still see myself very much as a clinician, I love straddling this gap between research and clinical practice because I can take the research and understand it now, thank God, after many years of reading it, to now go, okay, how does that look in my clinical work? And that's something that I try and bring to all of my workshops and training that I do for the DLD project is, you know, how do we synthesize and digest and consume research as a clinician to improve the outcomes 
for our young people because, or not so young people in some instances, because otherwise, you know, how are we doing a service to the people who are funding research and supporting research and actually doing the research if we're not actually taking on board their learnings because we just don't have the time clinically to do that. I mean, I wish we did. Um, and I often will argue for the case of a single case experimental design. You know, if you don't know, set it up as a, an experiment and then actually measure your outcomes because you don't know if every intervention is going to work with every child, but we can actually be scientific in the way that we look at our outcome measurements. So, which br brings me to my next question, which was in preparation for a recent workshop I did, which was on planning and outcome measurements. I really started to think more about the way in which I work around the spacing effect for multiple language therapy goals. And you've already mentioned spacing effect, which I'm thrilled about, um, but I'd really be interested in your views on how we as clinicians can leverage the spacing effect across goals. So you've talked about, you know, either, you know, those sessions being close together or, or spaced apart. How might we actually leverage that to benefit yeah. our young people? That's a really good question. What we try to do when we lay this out is, I mean, I think a visual helps a lot. And then it's, we do a lot of cycling. So let's just say you have a goal. Um, I'll keep it simple. Let's just say you're trying to, you have settled today to work on these five sort of complex abstract words. Um, for, for what it's worth, um, you know, you're working on words like reason and imagine. So these kind of harder conceptual words. And so it's Monday and in therapy, part of your time is spent working on these words. Um, then I would set those aside for a week or two um, and then hit your next goal. And then you're going to cycle back to those words and then maybe expand upon those. Mm -hmm. um, your re you know, instead of this linear progression of every day I hit these words or every couple of days, you're going to come back to them in a couple of weeks. And that really is going to leverage that spacing effect and allow you to be efficient by, you know, you're working on these words today and maybe tomorrow you're working on some sort of complex syntactic structure or story grammar, and then you just cycle in and out. But I've laid this out before in talks because I'll say, we look, you gotta work on five different higher level language skills with kids who are struggling with reading comprehension and you can't see kids all the time so you really have to lay this out um, and then and cycle through things. Yeah, I often talk about the concept of that interleaving. So, yes, you know, exactly. start, starting with something and I, I would say my therapy plans look like they've got little smiley faces or frowny faces over them because often I'll say, you know, I'm gonna introduce um, for a little one, I might introduce the concept of um, pronouns you know, we might introduce um, singular pronouns and address those. And then we might come back and address those as I'm also introducing prepositions the following week. But I've explicitly taught those in a really um, hands-on practical way. So it might've taken 15 or 20 minutes of my 30 minute session. And then I might do 10 minutes at the end of revising something we've done in the previous month, you know, but it means that I can get some of those practice, the practices of the thing that might have taken 20 minutes to teach them, we might get it down to five or six or seven minutes of just checking in on that over a period of sessions. But by doing it across a whole, what we'd call a term or sort of 10 week block, uh, you'd be able to then come back and rehearse and repractice 
all of those skills to the point where maybe the last session is just revision because you're focusing in on all of those things that you've covered. Because at the end of the day, I don't know about um, your work, but in my clinical work, children with DLD often have a lot of goals. You know, the parents have a lot of things they want to target. There's lots of gaps. Sometimes their language profiles look a bit like Swiss cheese. So you're trying to, you know, fill these different areas of development. It's sometimes that weight of feeling like you're trying to cover a lot can be lifted by going, okay, I'm pulling it together across a a block of therapy and going, okay, how can I run these threads through to the point where they're just touching on a little bit each time. And I find that that's where I get my best outcomes as opposed to going, I'm just going to focus on prepositions now for three weeks because I know that they're not going to consolidate everything they need to know about prepositions because it advances as they get older. Um, So, yeah, I think that the concept of spacings become really important, I think, in my clinical work um, and how do I interleave those goals together so that it actually achieves what we're wanting it to achieve. Yeah, I haven't heard that word interleaving for like 10 years. And I remember we Mm. wrote a language curriculum and it was all based on that idea of interleaving. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think what you're describing to me is really what takes an enormous amount of effort sort of intellectually for you to craft, to to take the long view here, you Mm. know, the full term and what I want to accomplish. And, you know, frankly... I think it'd be a heck of a lot easier to walk in and work on pronouns for a month. And so, um, you know, maybe that's with, with so many demands on the typical therapist, um, so many goals for kids, that is what we end up doing a lot of times is um, approach. But what you're saying is I think it, it is the way we need to go and orient ourselves conceptually, the interleaving spacing and then working towards those higher level goals over time. So you've touched on teachers in particular, and I know that many teachers and speech pathologists who actually work in schools do listen to our podcast because we get questions all the time. I wonder if you might be able to suggest how they could incorporate language intervention into classroom instruction to support language growth and even the concept of generalising, because we know that working on something clinically in a small white space might be effective, but as soon as we need to go and use it out in the big wide world in the classroom, um, it can be more challenging for them Um, and I know that this is a model that a a three-tier response intervention model would be quite um, consistently used in the US but I think it's got a broader adoption now internationally so even how might that look across whole school small group and individual work which state are you in I'm in Queensland in Australia oh isn't that where Jennifer Jennifer Peach is sure is so Jennifer Peach has really pushed, do you know her? I do know Jenny, yep. So one of the things she did really, um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a model for what you're getting at, but it's not the right model for what you're getting at. But around the world of preschool, early literacy and language or early childhood, you know, she, there were real questions some time ago was what is the SLT role here and mm-hmm. how we get SLT, SLPs to work closely with teachers. And so she's really pushed that read it again model where um, read it again is a preschool language and literacy curriculum we developed here. And then she's really taken it um, statewide there as a model where SLPs and teachers can collaborate. And I think it's, it's interesting because teachers 
and SL, we have such unique gifts to offer the classroom because SLPs, we know language in a way nobody else wants to know about language. I mean, nobody else finds <laughs> language that interesting. They're not going to go to school for it. So we have this really unique skill, but then teachers have this incredible approach to managing large groups of children and ensuring productive use of time. And so I think something like read it again is good because it sets common goals mm -hmm. um, where, okay, all kids need, let's just say all kids need to learn um, what, you know, something simple. It, it sets a common goal for teachers and um, peace so that you have a common goal in mind. And I think that that can be applied to um, the primary grades as well. Mm -hmm. um, but coming up with approaches that really bring together that shared understanding. Um, and there's not that many of those that are out there. No, I think I'm, so I'm dual qualified. So I have a speech pathology degree as well as a, a master's in special ed. And one of the things that I love about my PhD research is bringing those two together where I'm looking at the educational outcomes of children with DLD. And one of the people that comes to mind from, uh, you know, that whole school support and bringing people together is um, Julia Starling, who's got the links and link up program around teacher and speech pathology collaboration. I think that that's, you know, in terms of forming a base for particularly her work in secondary schools, but now expanding into that upper primary, um, you know, there is such a key role in speech pathologists and teachers coming together because they've got really unique and complementary skills. I always talk about speech pathologists being experts in, in speech and language development, but also teachers are experts in the curriculum. So fusing those is almost kind of, in my mind, the match made in heaven um, because we have so much overlap and interests. Um, and I, if I was being a bit facetious, I'd say to some principals that speech pathologists are actually cheaper to employ than teachers because we're not unionized. So, um, ah. you know, yeah. So speech pathologists are actually relatively cost effective in terms of bringing in that support um, that often schools need. So I think that uh, with teachers and speech pathologists working together in the classroom, you know, we can actually see some improvements at that whole school. We know that children with DLD will need further adjustments, um, but there are going to be universal benefits in having language-rich classrooms. Um, and I think that that's something that teachers often struggle with, maybe not so much in the early years. I think early years teachers are actually quite astute at language development. Um, I think they must get some of it, at least in Australia, in their pre-teaching programs. Um, but as soon as you go and talk to the high school physical education teacher, it's a whole different ball. <laughs> it's a whole different ball game. So I'm getting, con I'm becoming conscious of time. So I might start moving us towards finishing, oh, okay. Laura. But um, families who are listening will no doubt be wondering what they can do to actually help consolidate what the speech pathologist does um, in their home environment. And I love this phrase because somebody else came up with this, but is there is there a way that family practice can actually help turbocharge the dosage and frequency of language therapy? I have such mixed emotions over this. Um, mm -hmm. I, ugh, I the challenge is for me where I get at this because I do a lot of work with parent implemented interventions and yep. I hate to incur. So the, there are parents who will turbocharge their home kids. 
and they're going to go off and, you know, do all this great stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes, again, it can have diminishing effects, mm-hmm. but I really get concerned about the parents who are never going to be able to turbocharge. And when we try yes. to ramp, and that's where my heart is right now professionally is, mm. you know, we, especially through COVID, we have so many wonderful home learning things going on out there. And there's a third of parents that are never going to be able to do these types of things. And what we're doing is actually increasing the opportunity gap. And so I'm in a space right now where I do a lot of parent implemented intervention Hmm. um, for kids with DLD. And, you know, let's say we have parents, we want them to implement a twice a week therapy program at home. There's 37% of parents that we're going to lose. And, uh, research has got to figure out what to do about that subset of parents we're going to lose because you end up getting this huge Matthew effect in these interventions, the rich get rich, the poor get poor. So that that's a, I can't answer that. You'll have, have a parent expert on and you can talk all talk about that. <laughs> I think that what you're addressing is something that I look at with my clinical practice all the time is what are you hypothetically as a parent able to do i actually don't give i'm putting my hand up i don't give homework unless parents ask for it often i'm the person that became a parent and then realized what's involved in being a parent and will give people a standing ovation for arriving to clinic on time fully dressed and fed yep you got it yeah (laughs) i was like as a parent yeah so i'm like you you are here you are present you know, you are, and and please come into my room. I want to work with you. I try and break up my session. So I'm spending some time with the child and some time at least with parent support, training, at least informing them so they know what they're do, what we're doing. And I will say to parents often, what is realistic? And so the best example I can come up with is one parent saying, we do a lot of commuting to and from school. It takes us half an hour to get to school. Okay, great. You know, maybe that, that is your time to recast what they're saying and don't pick on, pick up and pick on them every time they misspeak in your opinion, you know, in the general society's opinion. Um, don't do it all the time because they're going to get sick of it and you're going to get sick of it. And you need a mental trigger to know this is something that you can do. Um, you know, there's activities that they can embed at home incidentally but without, uh, in my mind, without the pressure, unless they actually ask for it. And I have the other opposite end of the spectrum. I've got parents who want to read what I've read and do what I do. And some of them go on and become speech pathologists, which I think is a great achievement that they are able to do that. But I am totally with you with the, um, we've got to find that balance. And so I'm, I'm, I'm probably one of the few, but I'm one of the only speech pathologists I know who probably doesn't automatically give homework in a scrapbook yeah, um, every and, time. You know- because I don't want to give parental guilt, right? But, you know, this whole, the idea of parental involvement, you know, what parent involvement looks like in the way we, it's really based on a um, sort of a white middle-class perspective. And if you start mm. the literature around, especially around school involvement, where, you know, researchers talk to parents um, who are maybe from a mar- marginalized background, you know, what they view as involvement is totally different than this mm-hmm. street narrative. And 
So I think when we tread in a very dangerous pathway, when we, we define what parent, good parent involvement looks like, then we want parents to be involved in that predetermined way. And then when we aren't, we view them as less worthy. Um, and, 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 and I have to add to that to say, I'm not sure, there is good research in education suggesting that parent engagement matters. And that can look a lot of different ways. But parents going home and doing homework with their kids as a predetermined idea of what needs to happen, I don't see the literature out there for it. I mean, it's a great idea, but where's the evidence? And it's way more important. You've got a parent who cares about you and trusts you as a therapist is going to call you if they can't make an appointment. And so I think I agree with you. And yeah, I mean, I understand there are some parents who, you know, are on steroids about helping their kids. And, you know, that already is an asset in that child's life. Um, yeah. I'm much more interested in how to help the parents who were going to further, um, you know, beat on because they didn't show up three times or they didn't read the book we said we wish they'd read to their kid. The, those are the parents I'm concerned about. I think the message for parents from me, um, I think, stems back to potentially that there's still some preconceptions that they've done something to cause DLD, which is not true and not founded in evidence at all and that my message to parents would be that you are enough you know that you are enough to yeah. be turning up participating engaging exactly. so Laura just bringing us sort of towards the end in, in your opinion what would you love or hope to see in the future for DLD whether it's in the US or around the world thinking research clinical work service delivery you know what would you hope to see I think um I'm really interested in um, applying advanced um, methodologies to what we know about what happens in therapy. That I think that there's a lot of tools out there that are being used. I mean, a perfect example is, you know, my mom calls me, I don't answer, and my phone transcribes her text message to me, right? Mm -hmm. So why can my phone transcribe my mom's voicemail? And we are harnessing those types of tools in therapy to learn how to be much better for therapists and to better monitor kids' growth. So I, I really want to see us get with the 21st century in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, but I was reflecting a lot on this. And we, we, are, we have a perennial problem, which is that we're a small field of researchers studying kids who nobody really knows about. So we, you know, like I love big science. I love big studies. I love massive clinical trials um, with hundreds and hundreds of kids, but you know, we don't have that many kids or we don't have that much awareness or people caring about um, the kids we study. And so how can we ever harness those massive resources to do big, cool studies? Um, that's, so that's a bit of a pipe dream. Mm. Um, you know, I think we spent the longest time where our research community studied things that didn't really feel relevant to therapists, like grammaticals mm. of LI. And, and, you know, and that dominated the lab setting and our scientific community didn't care about applied work at all. Mm. 
So we're still dealing with generations of people who weren't trained to be out there in the field studying really messy caseloads and messy kids with messy families and messy schools. And, you know, that's the work that I want to see happen, but we don't have enough. We certainly don't have enough people doing it in the U.S. I think um, in Australia and Europe, we have more people studying more applied messy issues. Mm-hmm. U.S. tradition really hasn't been there. So see, I said you shouldn't ask me that. No, I think it's great. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if you know that I'm part of the Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder Committee. Yes. And one of the, obviously, the things that we really aspire to is greater awareness of DLD. And I keep coming back to the fact that essentially we had a rebranding, right? Like we rebranded this name. And so what we're doing now is increasing awareness, but at least we're trying to use that consistent approach. And I mean, I'm very fortunate in Australia that our National Association endorses that terminology and it's expected that speech pathologists can do and use those um, terms. But one of the things that I've noticed is that lack of confidence in saying, actually, this is what it is and this is what it looks like. Um, So I think once we get everybody's confidence up, we will have that consistent diagnosis, which will mean better awareness, better outcomes, um, because... At the moment, I mean, we're still riding the wave of, what, 40-plus different terms that have been used, right down to they might have a bit of a language delay through to SLI, through to, you know, LD, language disorder, according to the DSM. So, you know, we've still, I think we're working through MUC still, um, but I'm really optimistic. I think since Catalyze Consortium's papers were published, I'm really, I think Dorothy Bishop and her team would agree that I don't think we were expecting quite such a, positive upswing and um i'd like to think that perhaps rattled's had a little bit to do with that um well, good. as well yeah yeah and i think i've had to confirm and a lot of my studies what we do is our sample are kids who are being treated for language problems by slps hmm. we get 300 kids who are hmm. being treated for language problems that's a clinical hmm. sample um and peer reviewers you know for they for the longest time they couldn't handle it they're like, mm-hmm. you know, why didn't you rule out all these kids with really low nonverbal cognition? Or, mm-hmm. and we're like, because we are interested in clinical samples of kids who, um, but we're having, now it's getting much, much, much easier. People are like, okay, we get it. This yep. is a heterogeneous group. Um, and the catalyzed work, you know, and, and I always use the term DLD. I say, this is not SLI. This is a heterogeneous group of kids who have language issues. Um, so yeah maybe we're moving in the right direction um so as we're drawing to a close just one sort of last question at the dld project we really are trying to focus particularly since um 2020 and beyond um on self-care and finding time to breathe in a really busy day as a researcher and um somebody who supports the work of children with dld in schools through that research what do you do to look after yourself i do so many things to look after myself I, I sleep a lot. I walk and run and exercise and I, I feed birds and I play with my animals. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, and I don't work on weekends. Like I really good. Self-care. That's great. A little too much booze, but. <sighs> well, I was going to say, you got, you got to have some vices. You can't be good you at everything. Got, you Laura. Got it. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
And I watch a ton of television. <laughs> uh, I like your tweets occasionally asking for TV <laughs> recommendations. You obviously follow up on them then. <laughs> Pretty much. So just to recap, in your mind, what are some of the key points you'd like our listeners to take away from our chat today? Um, I think there's, I think being really mindful about dosage, what we do know and what we don't know is should be a really crucial part of our time as therapists. Um, you know, what we do know is that there must be some active ingredient, ingredient that's bringing around change in kids' mm -hmm. skills and to be really mindful of trying to pay attention to what that is. Um, and then really allowing yourself to leverage that spacing effect. We don't need to see kids three and five times a week. We just need to be fiercely productive when we are with kids. Um, and, you know, always being aware that there's a big gap between what we know and what we need to know and that, you know, we have to be a scientifically based discipline where, you know, what we're learning today allows us to become better with time. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Laura. I really Great, appreciate Sean. it. And I'm sure our listeners are going to absolutely love it. I feel like I've just had a personal professional development session which is wonderful oh, wonderful well i will be in touch as we launch that study and pick your brain thank you laura and sean love the comment from laura that we don't need to see kids three to five times a week to get progress we just need to be fiercely productive when we are with the kids i am sure this is going to give plenty of hope to parents that any investment in therapy will help people with dld to grow we're now over 3,000 listens for the Talking DLD podcast. Uh, be sure to tune into our other eight episodes. We've got a heap of um, workshops also coming up, including diagnosing DLD with confidence. You can find out more at thedldproject.com. Together, we can create a world where people with DLD are recognized, understood, and empowered to live their best life. Thanks for being on the team.